When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste, Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Undercover Vegan. And if you haven't already, please do make our day with some rate, review and recommend action. Thanking you kindly, motherfuckers. But back to today's theme, veganism. The word vegan was coined by Donald Watson in 1944. He took the first and last letters of vegetarian. You might have already worked that one out for yourself. But you may not know that other early suggestions for the name vegan were vitan, dairy ban, Sanivore and Beaumanger. I do like Beaumanger. And the first vegan cookbook was published way back in 1910 by a certain Rupert H. Weldon. Remember him? No, me neither. The book was called No Animal Food, Two Essays and a Hundred Recipes. Not the most catchy title for a book. And what do these three things have in common? Smoky bacon Pringles, prawn cocktail walkers and McCoy's sizzling barbecue crisps. They are all suitable for vegans. You look great. Oh, you. I set them up. You look uh. them <laughs> That's my guest today, Justin Morehouse. There's a new version of Monopoly designed for millennials where it's no longer possible to buy property. Instead, players gain experience points through activities like attending a festival or going to a vegan bistro. In 2014, animal rights group PETA, am I saying that right? You know what I mean. Um, The animal rights group PETA or PETA or whatever they're called, I think it is PETA, I'll stop waffling, Uh, they asked the Yorkshire village of Fryup to change its name to Vegan Fryup. Fryup politely declined. And Fomage, spelt F-A-U-X-M-A-G-E, Fomage, means vegan cheese. Très chic. Look at you all professional. Oh, microphones and things and yeah. Justin Morehouse describes himself as a comedian, actor, dog walker, parent, undercover vegan and northern joker. He got into comedy at the age of 29 after feeling lost in a variety of different jobs up to that point. Comedy saved me, he said. His first gig was at Manchester's legendary Frog and Bucket venue and he very quickly rose through the ranks after that, securing the role of young Kenny in Phoenix Nights just a year later. During lockdown, he launched his podcast, About 30 Minutes, No More Than 45. I can strongly recommend a recent episode that he and I recorded on a train. And he is currently on tour with his latest show, Stretch and Think. Justin and I talked about quizzing, marriage, divorce, sleeping alone, being funny, nights on, nights off, contradictions, 
addictions, self-improvement, planes, cruise ships, feminism and life-changing moments. But I started by asking him about his fellow contestants on his recent appearance on Richard Osman's House of Games. Helen George, who I think had a bit of a baby brain week, but she's, she's quite posh, isn't she? Yeah, Helen well George, I've called the midwife, I guess. And yeah. she just, she's got a four month old baby, hasn't she? Yeah, I think she's not. Um, I always confuse well spoken with posh. Yeah. Or southern with posh. Yeah, southern. She is. So- yeah. I mean, I'm southern. She's southern. Yes, yeah, so Helen very, George. Very, very southern. Because um, I thought that was the accent she uses for her character on Call the Midwife, but actually. She, that's what she is 24-7. The real her. So she had a baby brain. Yeah, and then I had, sitting on my left, uh, as a, a brilliant uh, comedian, I don't know if you, if you know her, called Callie Beaton. I haven't heard of her. What's she like? Uh, excellent. Uh, she's funny, stylish, interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, my God. Know. She sounds yeah. amazing. I bet she she's not single with a dog, is she? <laughs> I bet she's not available. Exactly. I bet she's not sitting in a broom cupboard in Amsterdam on her own on a Wednesday evening Where? when we're recording. There. <laughs> Where in there, sir? Right there. It's Callie Beaton with the headphones on. Well, I declare. <laughs> so you're always on, you. Always on, yeah. Just get a cup of tea coming in. Just hold on a second. Fled it out. No, yeah, I could interrupt. Thank you. Thank you very much. What, who's making you a brew there? Is that your wife? Uh, uh, not my wife, no. Girlfriend? Uh, partner? My, my life partner. Yeah. Ah. Do you know Anthony J. Brown? No. He had a lovely shot where he said, uh, he goes, uh, my girlfriend, he said, I know it's a bit weird when you're a bit old to say girlfriend, but when I say partner, people presume I'm gay when they see her. <laughs> <laughs> It's a funny one, isn't it? No, I'm not. I'm not married. I was married. I have been married a long time ago, but uh, just once. You've you just been married once. Just the once, yes. Yeah. Have you been married? No, I've never been married. No. no. Where's the bridesmaid? I've been. I've been proposed to on three different occasions, not by the same fella. So have yeah, there's three different relationships which got to the point of proposal, proposal being made. And, and how did you what, did you accept any of them? Well, no, I didn't. There was one I probably there was one I he was still married. One of the ones that I would have accepted, and I said, small point of uh, you needing to get divorced. By the time he did get divorced, yeah. we'd broken up. So no, I've never really been. And now I don't. When think you I would. when you want a proposal, you want no chain required. Exactly. You, you like want, buying a you house, want, isn't you it? You want a cash a cash proposal, don't you? So um, yeah, no, he was still married. So yeah, I've never really been that interested he, in. Marriage. He asked you to marry you when he was still married. Well, he it wasn't like he was still married and we were having an affair. He'd been separated oh. from his wife for years. Right. And they hadn't, this this happens a lot, Justin. Straight, yeah, it, it happens a lot that men, middle-aged men, so men of our age yeah. who are coming out of the kind of divorce rank, you know, so that's yeah. my dating demographic is divorcees usually. Yeah. And they usually aren't divorced very frequently. They're still married, but they haven't been with their wives for years. And there are various reasons they haven't got divorced. Financial. Yeah, I guess. And I don't actually really give a shit normally. Um, in fact, I don't really care. But it does mean marrying them's hard. Mm. But I would It's a funny one, to, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, think, um, I think I got divorced and it was very amicable. 
How old were you when you got divorced? I was 30. Right. So a year after starting comedy for you. Yeah, that's quite telling, isn't it? It is. No, I wasn't I mean... 30. No, I wasn't actually. I was about 31, 32. Oh, I see. You're a couple to... of years in. You're yes. trying to retrofit this to not... No, not at all. No, no, not at all. So actually uh, it was even worse because it's you just got beyond the open mic stage and yeah, then you got, got divorced. You were like, I'm, going, I'm cooking yeah. with gas now. Done Phoenix Nights. Second series. <laughs> yeah, ditch the Deadwood. Okay, lovely. Re- I think you residuals. made that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Great. So you waited for a little bit of fame and glory and yeah. dumped your first wife. And and you know what? No, I didn't dump her. I didn't dump her. She it was a it was you know what it was the I never talked about this before uh publicly. I feel like it's 20 years ago, so I can probably get away with it. I had been to China with uh with Mandy Knight and done some gigs in China, and I'd done a lot of thinking, and I thought to myself, I'm just making her miserable. And then I thought, is she making me miserable as well? And do you know what I thought, Callie? I don't care. I don't care how she makes me feel because actually I was sort of so caught up in my own stuff. And then I just thought, I am, I'm making, I'm making her you're like, what is the point of being in a kind of state of flux where you're falling out all the time and nitpicking? It's like, stop it. It's like we've we're only we've we've got like at that point. We're lucky we've got our 60 years left. Yeah. You know, why make why make any of that miserable if you can avoid it? I want to know if there's a way to get a long way into a relationship where that doesn't happen. Because I have to say, as somebody who by at the moment is single by choice, mm-hmm. I look at I sometimes think like over here in Amsterdam, there's been a couple of moments where I've been like cycling along a canal and thinking, oh, it'd be really nice to have someone to share this with. And then I've been thinking, yeah, but he'd probably be annoying me and he'd want to go how left wide and the path I'd is. <laughs> What are you saying? <laughs> they just get rid of him. Like, I think, um, I think because people secret... can be annoying, can't they? Like, it's, it's easy when you're on your own to think, I wish I was with somebody, but when you're with somebody, then they're there and it can be mm. annoying. I think the secret to uh, a long relationship is being a comedian. What, so you're you, never there? Well, you can get, you know, I think, I think something really healthy about sleeping on your own every now and then. Yeah. And just stretching out in the bed and getting up when you want to get up. I think. It's just such a weird thing that we actually sleep in the same bed as other human beings. I'm like, no, animals don't do that. They don't cuddle up at night. No, we might that's when we sort of have cartoon versions of them. But no one's lying in the same bed. It's such a strange... Sharing a nest. Yeah. I always think, I used to always cite Helena Bonham Carter and Tim Burton as the yeah. perfect couple, you know, when they had the houses next door. Yeah. And she had the key to his, but he didn't yeah. have the key to hers. I was like, yeah. until obviously now we know what was going on. It's like, well, that's maybe not the perfect <laughs> relationship. And he was doing whatever he wanted all the time, apparently. Uh, so, but I used to, I do think I wouldn't want a bloke to move in. I wouldn't mind. They could live in the shed at the bottom of the garden part-time, but I wouldn't what want about- them in the house. My, uh, some friends of mine, uh, friends of friends, uh, sounds like uh, you don't even know them, went to a different school, uh, but they're, they're older than me, but they've been going out with each other for over 25 years. And uh, he lives uh, a street away from her and he spends most of his time at her house. Okay. And then when they are getting on each other's nerves, they have a code and she'll say to him, she'll say, what are you having for your tea tonight? Oh, and that means go home to your place. Yes. And he'll go, oh, I might just get a takeaway or something, you know, when I'm walking around. That's and good, isn't it? Just, just, yeah, because I think, I, I think 
I didn't know this was going to be about relationships because I'm not a relationship expert. Nor did I, but here we are. But I think that honesty and openness is everything in a relationship. I think you have to tell people everything. Really? This sounds terrifying. Everything of the heart, you know. I don't know. I mean, I've never been in that situation where... I reckon you know, your other half's listening to this going, fucking hell, Justin, <laughs> give it a rest. She, well, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I'm just a fucking... I'm, I'm an arsehole. I, 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 you know, the famous... The, 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 obvi- the thing that happens a lot, people will say to her, oh, must be a laugh a minute around your house. She's like, no, we don't, we don't come, we don't come on going, hey, hey, how's this? We, they don't get the best of us. We say no, things they like, don't. They'll say things like, is this funny? Oh. And they'll go, no. Yeah. I think um, it's definitely the I've got because you you got into comedy when you were 29, right? Which mm-hmm. I know you've said is late compared to some of us, Justin, that is not late. Yeah. But did you find I've found since I've well, done- I got I got into comedy, I got into show business late. You were already in show business you yeah, but already... i was on the business side of show business but it's all it's not show friends it's all show business that's true so i was i i yeah i was very much not the jazz hands end of it although i suppose you need a bit of jazz hands to do what i did before but still yeah. i did fight so i i used to be like you know i i'd like to think the funniest person in the room a lot until i was a comedian and i'm definitely not the funniest person in the room now because i feel like everything funny gets put into like material like I, I, if i think it's funny i write it down i'm trying to be funny obviously x number of nights a week mm. that's kind of what you're getting paid to do did you find you got less funny as a human being when you got more funny on stage or is this just a particular problem i'm encountering do you know, um, could be, but there's... You've been on a train with me. You know I'm dull as dish, dishwater. No, we had a sparkling, engaging conversation. It's not... Sometimes it's good not to be funny. Sometimes it's good just to listen. And that's why you get funny by listening. The only thing that I found is that occasionally I'll be in a dressing room, a uh, green room, you know, with a com- other comedians, and everyone's kind of, you know, riffing and doing all that stuff. And then I'll sometimes feel like I'll do a joke or something and they'll not laugh. And the crushingness of that is like when I was at school and I feel like they're bullying me. Like you don't belong. Yeah. When I do belong, because I'm better than all of them. I'm I'm modest with it. Yeah, absolute zero self-confidence. Yeah, more house, low self-esteem. I'm (laughs) one of the best, so actually... The chances are, when I'm in a dressing room, I am the funniest. Yeah. Well, you see, I'll remember never to banter with you in a dressing room because you are the funniest. But <laughs> I, ban- I always I find, <laughs> I find if I'm really funny backstage, if I'm trying to be funny and I'm putting loads of energy into that, I'm not as good <laughs> when I go out anyway. Like, I'm just like, I'm right here. I'm, I might be funny afterwards, but right now, don't not because I'm sort of not speaking, but I just don't really want to, I don't want to, you know, spunk yeah. your mother loads. Don't do your best work in the gym. Exactly. Yeah. Who's doing press ups before a boxing match? Exactly. Nobody. Well, I'm definitely not doing press ups before a boxing no. match for What's various your, reasons. What are you like before a gig? Are you kind of relaxed, grumpy? I'm. I'm oh, not. Yeah. Um, I don't feel nervous, but I get quite preoccupied, and I'm just a bit ratty. So, like, I'll be a bit ratty in the car mm. going there. A bit ratty if I get delayed which I always do because I always leave late for gigs. I'm just in a, I've got a bit of a cob on uh-huh. and I think that must be my way of being nervous. So I don't feel nervous, but I'm definitely preoccupied and sort of not really thinking about material, just sort of in a bit of a, yeah, I, I'm never in the best mood for an hour or two before I go on stage. Tunnel vision. 
just a bit grumpy and it's not I'm not normally a grumpy person so yeah I think that must be must be something to do with me focusing on it um do you get that every single night even if you're not gigging do you find yourself going what's up oh yeah I should be getting ready for a gig but I'm not yeah it's funny isn't it because I do I mean like you I do a lot of corporates so I'm either doing a gig or I'm doing an awards or a corporate like it's quite rare I probably have a night a week when I'm not doing anything Mm -hmm. I know we talked about this on the on the train but all our listeners went on the train so they can hear it now for fresh and Mm -hmm. and like here I'm here for three nights over here and I'm only gigging one of the three so that's kind of weird like tonight I'm doing this with you which we're recording it in the evening and it's we'll finish about nine o'clock Dutch time but I'm not doing anything else tonight and it does always feel like it feels nice we're doing the podcast tonight because otherwise I'd be like oh I'm not doing anything so what will you do then how because I, I find that when I have a night off I just I just flit about I don't sit down and watch something I don't I know I don't have a normal I, I have a you know a normal life I, I just kind of funny about and then I go oh it's dead late there's no point starting anything now and, and that sort of stuff I do you know I've got a terrible sort of workaholic habit so I'll probably when we finish up I've got I've got a list as long as my arm of things I'm meant to have done and add many things and this things and that I'll probably just sit at my computer for two hours and just blast through a load of boring shit will you sleep well though I've having done that yes yeah it's great isn't it it is so nice do you sleep? are you a good sleeper I haven't been uh, but I'm I'm doing stuff about that to make sure that I can what, what are you doing about it? Drugs? Um, no, I, um, I've changed my. Um, I've changed. I've, I've I've employed the services of a nutritionist. Now, because this is one of the things people who know you and most, you know, most if not all of my listeners will. There's such a dichotomy between you are full of contradictions, Justin Morehouse, because you would think with you on stage, and I know your persona on stage has changed a lot over the years as well. But you wouldn't think, oh, that teetotal, vegan, nutritionist, mindful Morehouse. <laughs> it's just not what you'd think. But those are all the things that you are. I think because I don't drink anymore, so I don't party. I had to be evangelical about something. Right. So I think that, well, I'm not actually. I'm on a path. I, I, I'm, I'm definitely on a path of, of improvement and change and there's loads of parts of my life that I wasn't happy with and not happy with still. You like know, what? Um, my um, relationships with people. Um, you know, I stopped working on them, you know, various ones, not just like uh, home life, which has been, you know, rocky. Um, but it's, you know, it's coming around. Um, you say that until you haven't got scalding tea in your hand anyway. <laughs> No, that's not safe for home truths when the tea's finished. No, no, it's not. It's 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 you know. And I had a bit of a kind of a, a mental health wobble um, about eighteen months, two years ago. My dad died, uh, and uh, this is my dad, this is therapy now, isn't it? It is. My you, dad died, you can and have I it for free. I didn't deal with it. I just did not deal with it. I didn't. Um, so and, how long and before the pandemic did your dad die? Six months. Oh and goodness! It was, so it's really it complicated. It was complicated as well because. He actually wasn't my father. He was my stepfather. However, he had brought us up since we were like five and six. And that's another bagatelle of uh, conundrums uh, in there, in in that uh, my issues about abandonment and everything else and never really feeling like part of the family, even though I was. It's just, it's weird. And and that all came to the surface. And when my dad died, I, I kind of was there when he died and... I felt guilty about feeling sad. How weird is that? 
it's interesting isn't it so it so what was that like then when you felt like that I felt guilty about not feeling sad I felt guilty about feeling sad and then I felt awkward about it because I didn't cry or do anything and my mate Jim who's a good friend of mine and he he said listen you know he said you need to check in on yourself every now and then you need to just make sure you're all right and you need to do these things and I was like yeah 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 <laughs> and eventually when I um when it my problems manifested themselves in a kind of visceral way which was <laughs> it's funny it is funny and uh, I don't wish to make light of anyone's mental health struggles but these are my own I have to own my own truth I'd be walking down the street and I just start crying I just start crying and I remember walking down the street and there's a, a a woman who I kind of know an old lady I was walking through uh, near where I live and she went oh, are you all right and I went not not really and she went whatever is the matter and I went I don't know I said, that's the thing. And she said, and she said, have you been to see your doctor? And I went, no. And she went, I, I, I would. And so that lady sort of like set me up, you know, and I've been having a little bit of therapy and, you know, and, and then, then the pandemic came and it was, you couldn't do therapy during the pandemic. And, and Did you else. go and see, cause some, it's funny, isn't it? How sometimes the kind of kindness or familiar strangers, that's an interesting term, isn't mm. it? And I guess she was a familiar stranger yeah. to you. And I think they can be the most helpful people in the world, really. A known unknown. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that person who you had a tiny bit of knowledge of saw you and noticed you and actually there's something quite touching about somebody really seeing you when you're that upset and vulnerable. And instead of sort of shying away, actually walking towards you and saying, basically, actually what she was saying is I want to help you. Wasn't she? Yeah. And this is how I'm going to help you. Definitely. And I, and I thought I was sort of bulletproof because, you know, I've had experience of, of mental health um, uh, crises in my own family and things like that. And uh, I've always been the kind of like stoic one and I pride myself on being stoic and everything else. And it's only through therapy and uh, medication and, and that sort of that it was that old classic of that, you know, what the kind of problems I had are that where you keep pouring stuff into the pot and you don't know it's full. You don't know it's full because mm -hmm. you can't see the pot. You just pour it in blindly. And then one day it spills over. And then you've got a problem. And before you know it, you don't know how to deal with it. So um, my doctor gave me some drugs and they were really good. They just take the top and the bottom off how I'm feeling about stuff and, and, they stop the highs and the lows and I've reduced my sort of like um, dosage over the kind of um, period of taking them where now I, I probably like to think that I'd like to come off them if I can a bit more settled and stuff and back at work and everything else. And I, and I think the pandemic and not working really affected me really. I lost my sense of purpose and worth and value and, and, and I really love being a stand-up comedian. And you love, love the it. live work. One of the things I love about you, it, it comes across as well on, on stage. I mean, you're such a showman and you're, you're so skilled in a live room working live with whatever presents itself to you. Mm. And I think there are loads of comics, particularly now, who really just want to make it on telly, make it big on telly. And I know your ambition above all is to have your audience selling out rooms, yeah. isn't it? And yeah. that's and that's really evident to see, which makes you such a joy as a live act because it's certain it's the opposite of a means to an end for you, isn't it? it is the that's end. real that's so nice that you say that because that is my that's my thing. If I could gig every night and you know and that's it I'd love it. I've made I've made it. That's why I've made it. And I think I did a show on uh, I don't know when this podcast goes out, but I did a show on Easter Monday and it was a, a fundraiser and we had loads of people on the bill. 
and we had uh, contemporary comedians and we had uh, old school comedians and we we're raising money for um, people who had been affected by the war in Ukraine. And, uh, and we had Joe Pasquale on. And I, I don't think he'll mind me reading you a text that he sent because everyone came in and just started chatting and everyone was chatting. Mick Miller, Joe Pasquale, Les Dennis. It was great. And he said, um, hello, mate. I just wanted to let, say thank you for letting me do a bit last night. I loved it. It was the best I've felt in the last two years. Thank you. It was medicine to me. I know you're always subscribing. You certainly didn't need me there. So I really appreciate if I can do ever do anything again, just call me lots of love, Joe. Wow. And I think that's how we all feel. We all felt that. I, I don't know about you, Callie, but before the pandemic, you'd turn up to a, a gig and there'd be seats weren't facing the right way and the sound quality was a bit poor. Like, oh, this is crap. This is terrible. You, then the first time we were allowed to do like gigs outside to like driving cars and countryside, this will work. I know. This is all right. We'll like Felt take so anything. good, didn't it? I yeah, remember yeah. my first one back was a brewery. It was um, a brewery car park in near Oxford or in Oxford. And I remember getting there and normally I'd have looked at that scenario and yeah. gone, this is going to be a shit yeah. show. And I was so excited in that everyone in the cars, well, you can't tell if they're excited in the cars. I'm going to say they were excited. Yeah. Some of them even got out of their cars. I'm taking that as a good thing. But yeah. and, and it definitely feels, I wonder if there's also something though about that, the kind of introvert, extrovert things. I don't know where you're at on that scale, but I feel like I'm a, probably an introvert extrovert so fundamentally I am extrovert I'll, I like talking to people I like going out I get a lot mm -hmm. of energy from other people but I also need a lot of time and space on my own so I would find it hugely claustrophobic to do like a reality show where you were with people 24 yeah. 7 and there was something about the pandemic that I just literally it was like someone had taken the battery out of the kind of Duracell bunny you know like I didn't the thing you get from just not, and not even just having a chat with someone you bump into on a train or when you're getting a coffee. And without that, I just felt absolutely bereft. Well, that's what, that's what we are. That's what comedians are. We are controlled extroverts. Mm -hmm. So I always say it's like a padded cell. So you give us the parameters of where we are and we'll, we'll go to the edges of that, but take us out of, take you off stage. And you know, there's, I, I, there's nothing nicer than sitting on a plane for eight hours on your own. Yeah. Book. Especially when Wi-Fi, I hate it that they brought Wi-Fi onto planes. It's like, don't yeah. do that. That was <laughs> when I was a single mum and I used to travel loads for work. And I remember getting as far as getting on the plane was horrendous. I'd be like working out what bags they needed for this, who's yeah. looking after them, a grid of all their schoolwork and stuff. And by the time I would get to the airport, I'd be like, oh, this is just amazing. I've done what I can do now. Yeah. And those flights. But I did used to get talking of crying in front of strangers. Um, I used I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I used to get really emotional on flights. And I think it was partly the because I had the time, but yep. apparently there is also an actual scientific phenomenon that yep. your, I think it's your fight or flight response is on it's, high alert. And you it's do called, have, um, oh, there is an actual, I knew you'd know. No, they quizzer. talk about it. They talk about it on entertainment, you know, the Mark Kermode and thingy. Oh, yeah. It's why you, it's why you cry at films on the plane more. It's altitude induced tears type of thing. It is a thing. It is you a feel, thing. Yeah, you feel heightened emotions that all emotions are heightened. So yes. I always, when I found that out, I was like, that's why we should be gigging if people have heightened reactions. <laughs> You'd be like, nailed it. But it's They've um... done that. They've done, they've done, people have done gigs, haven't they, on planes going up and down to Edinburgh. Like, 
Uh, Can you imagine? Me. It's like, have you done the? I always think doing the cruise ship sounds bad enough. Have you uh, done the cruise? You'd no. be all right on the cruise ships. No, I wouldn't. You, but you've got so much material. The thing I would worry about on a cruise ship is I burn through my two twenties on night one, <laughs> and then I'd have to do them for the next forty nights. So by the end, no. everyone would want to shoot themselves in their I, head. I think it's a certain type of person that can. Do, I think you have to have some unique, like, personal defects or qualities however you want to call them to do cruises and i don't do you think, think so mike gunn does them you're mates with mike gunn aren't you he's done yeah. them he made me really laugh telling me about the experience of doing them and um and one time he was on i can't remember who with it, it was some a good name and the two of them had, had done whatever they'd done the night before and they were swimming and the next day a couple came over and the bloke from the couple said you should be ashamed of yourselves go back to your cabins because he thought they'd been so shit the night before oh my god the, the thought that you're on a boat and having to do your breakfast buffet and everything with the uh, people but who no, saw but you die on your ass the night most before. cruises you don't you're not allowed to mix with the people so what do you have to do? Is it like butlins and it's like servants? Officer quarters? class. Yeah, yeah. Well, you go, they don't you don't go in the cat, you don't go passenger, you go officer, but so you don't go like down in the engine room. But somebody was telling me the other day, and they'll, you know, these big cruise ships, they run on really tight margins. So if they can save a couple of quid on a on a on a flight, they will do. There was a guy who got off Alicante and he lived, no, he got off in Gibraltar and he lived in Alicante. Right? And they gave him a dinghy to get home. No, they flew to Edinburgh to change for a flight back to Alicante. Oh so it was cheaper God. than a direct flight to Alicante. Oh, no. I mean, the thought of being, I'm I'm not a fan of being on water anyway, but I do think going, um, yeah, that time when you're alone, I definitely used to feel kind of really emotional on planes and I'd like, and you'd end up having really intimate conversations. I don't mean like sexy stuff, but intimate yeah. conversations with strangers because you're, there you are and what are you going to talk about? And you'll be telling people things you probably wouldn't tell one of your closer friends because mm. it's the comfort of a stranger. I once sat next to, I went to um, Rio uh, to do the Olympics in 2016. What was and your I'm, sport? No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was out working there with Team GB and the sponsors. And I sat next to uh, Antoine Mossiman, you know, the uh, chef. Yeah. And... Uh, this is the difference. So we sat, we had nice seats, obviously. And he was translating his book from French into German. I saw his autobiography. And he, he was wearing a suit and that. He, uh, you know, people who, you probably know this, but I've never travelled. Uh, I've never turned left that often in my life. The few times I have, I've really enjoyed it. And, and then you never want to turn right again. Exactly. And you know that thing where he, he just, as he got on the plane, he, he took his jacket off and gave it to the steward. Stewardess, and I just thought, what's he doing that for? And she just goes, go and hang it up. Like yeah. that's what they do. I didn't yeah. like you don't know these things unless you are a frequent regular flyer in those scenarios. And then when the dinner came, he went into his little handbag that he had, his little like man sack, wherever it was, and he pulled out a um Lacoste polo shirt, like <laughs> and pulled it over his own clothes to wear as a bib. Did he? How, thinking, how dirty is he as an eater? That's what I want to know. And I was thinking, and a white one as well. And I was thinking, they're like 90 quid. Yeah. Like, if you get any, like, that's not exactly a bin bag, is it? <laughs> and I just thought, well, that's the difference, isn't it? I mean, I'd be like, I'd be covering that up because that's my best top. Yeah. That's me, you know, my nice white top that I want to wear when I get to <laughs> the Copacabana. But no, he was, uh, yeah, he was going out there doing something for, for the Olympics. 
But you so, do, you have chats, don't you, with people and, and, and find out different stuff about people that you would never have known. Namaste, motherfuckers. I did um, another podcast today, recorded another one um, with a, um, an ex-Premier League footballer. And he Which was, one? Uh, uh, oh, you'll know him actually, because, oh no, you, you did not play for any of the teams you support. Um, Chris Sutton. Yeah, and he did. He played for Celtic. I'm a Celtic oh, he did fan. play for Celtic. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So he was. Um, there's my so, Celtic. There's my Celtic mug there. Oh, there you go. He's um he's an amazing guy. Actually, really, really lovely guy. Mm. I did some I did some work with him recently and got. But he was talking about obviously going from being a footballer to now being on the kind of after dinner circuit and all the stuff he does. And but he's got a massive family. He's got six kids. He's yeah. got a wife. He's got like they've got loads of animals. But there's something about what we do that is you really are a sort of solo traveler aren't you like you're going around you do your thing you turn up we see people we know pretty much everywhere we go right I'm imagining mm. you know 95% of the acts you end up backstage with or but it's it is quite a sort of lonely life you could easily get quite disconnected from any kind of belonging or community couldn't you definitely but especially traveling do you find this when you're traveling with your loved ones that you're just keeping yourself to yourself yes like they go why don't you talk to me and I go no, no one talks on the on the bus we're just being ourselves just read your book put your yeah. headphones in yeah I suppose so I, I it's a mixture isn't it I I really enjoy the time on my own and then I enjoy um I enjoy I enjoy other comedians company I'm not one of these though that has to hang around with somebody all weekend how do you feel about a car share comedians car share Lovely listener, he's shaking his head. I agree with you. Do you know? I still, I bet you don't get asked anymore. But I do. I my worst thing is, and I hope no one's listening who I've. But my worst thing is when I've said yes to a gig, I'm definitely doing the gig. Then I'm asked if I'm driving to the gig, and I have to, by the promoter, and I have to obviously say yes because otherwise they might be like, "How are you going to get from the train station?" And yeah. then they'll go, "Oh, blah blah blah's there," and they live in you know, yeah. wherever Luton, could you drop them in the way back? And I just think, oh, that's just added a half hour onto my journey home. Yeah. And, and I, feel really no. ch- I feel so churlish saying no. No, I, I think, really. No, no, I say no, because unless like, you know, the old, it's the old adage, isn't it? You know, what, what sits in the car and doesn't show up an open spot is had a good gig. But, <laughs> but like, I think like open spots <laughs> and the, the people are doing like the sort of like the expenses middles, then I think it's our responsibility, Callie, uh, especially with me, who's doing who's doing all right, and I know you're on the you're still on the sort of circuit climb up. Yeah, but I think it's really important that we don't pull the ladder up. I think it's really important that we do bring those people with us because you learn loads off those people because you share your experiences, they share their experiences. I mean, but for like the headliner or the supporting act who's getting who's earning a living wage by being a comedian, they should not be asking people for a lift. Yeah. They should be learning to drive, or if they don't want to drive, they should be getting public transport. Oh, I like that. So there's a hierarchical, like, yes or no. Definitely. I'm wondering why you've never driven me to a gig then, Justin, if you're trying to help me on the circuit. You never, never even offered. No, if somebody lives near me and I like them... And oh, we're so going you don't to want to drive gig, me to Camden. That's a bit much, is it? <laughs> I'm not going to come down to Camden, <laughs> drop you off at Dingwalls, whatever it is, and then wait for you, then take you back up the road. Oh, I see. Well, you're all talk, aren't you? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think there's something, though, about that lack of... Um, yeah, that sort of on-offness of the whole thing. Because when you had at the beginning of the pandemic and before, so that kind of crisis you had, which you had at a really difficult time, right? Mm-hmm. So you're feeling like that anyway. And then I did carry on having therapy during the pandemic, having it via Zoom. And actually, I've carried on having it via Zoom. I got kind of used to it um, that way. I, I went to in my mate's house for a bit. 
but I was spending more time at the family home than I should have been. It was all very, it was all very messy. I just, I never did the, did it the right way. And it just elongated the kind of pain and the everything else. And, and you you've know, still oh, got kids at home, one at home or two at home? One at home. One yeah. still at home. So that doesn't help things either, does it? When you're trying to work out where to be and, and no, what and space you need. And, and she's really kind of like, like on the surface level headed and mature and everything else. But you don't know what that kind of shit's doing to the kid underneath and, you know, in the middle of GCSEs and they're living in a pandemic. And I felt really responsible for that. And, and you can see, I mean, I've never been an advocate and I've always been one of those people that says, oh, you shouldn't stay together for the kids, you know, when they're younger, obviously. You shouldn't, you know, it's better to have two happy parents apart. But you can see why people are attracted at trying to make it work and papering over the cracks to the detriment of their own mental health. Mm-hmm rather than upsetting their children. I mean, it's, it's it's a real difficult one. And I think relationships are real, really hard to kind of, like you say, maintain how long, you know, how do you keep that going forever? It's such a thing. I know what I was joking with Chris Sutton about having six kids. I was like, how were you even having sex by the yeah. fourth one? Like, let alone six of them. So we're well, fair play to you. Two hat you. tricks though, isn't it? When you're a footballer. <laughs> but you do end up um I think with kids like because we split up when my kids were uh three and five and that you know it was definitely the right thing that we split up and I think he you know he's really happy with the his well not so new partner now and the kids have got a very sort of blended family life across both Mm -hmm. the households I think we've done it as well as anyone could do it but it's definitely there's collateral damage and I still feel massively guilty about Mm -hmm. it often I think well there's things we just you know when I think about how stressed I was a lot of their childhood and they sort of say to me now you're much more relaxed now mum as a person and it's like I'm thinking well yeah because I don't have to be the sole adult in charge of everything anymore with you two not not that I don't really miss them but I haven't got that responsibility of little children now and being the only grown-up so I don't know what the answer is to be honest and I look at I think the few people who actually meet young and I think that's the that's the sweet spot if you meet someone young and manage to stay with that person that's your chance at a sort of 30 40 50 year relationship I think here's it gets the question really, though really in that 30 later. 40 50 years and let me be brusque yeah in that 30 40 50 years there must be a time where you go I want to fuck that person yeah, of course. But it's, it, but it's about the not doing it, I think, isn't it? Is it? I think so. I mean, or do you think a lot of these people <laughs> do it and that's what keeps the marriage going? Well, they say it's, um, I think it's one in three people are having affairs, aren't they? And those are the people who've admitted on a survey that they're having an affair. <laughs> so that's so that's the tip of the iceberg. It's, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm guessing it's m- m- much more like two in three, I'd imagine, um, having affairs. Uh, having or had well, uh, so I think have have had, yeah. I think at some yeah. point have been unfaithful, and yeah, I know. And it is also the, um, I mean, even that question aside, it's just how do you? When you were saying earlier on about the, um, you know, your first marriage and thinking I'm just making we're making each other miserable because we're just being so petty. I see it now as someone not in a relationship. You know, when you're at an airport or a train station yeah. and there's a couple just digging at each other and every, they're like looking yeah. at the other one, eating crisps the way they hate it and yeah. breathing the way it annoys them. And I'm thinking, I've been in relationships where I am that person who hates everything about the person I'm with and they hate everything about me, but we're still together. And I don't know if it's possible to get to a point where you don't have all that petty shit, where you just annoy the so living hell out then? of each other. So what do you do then? Then, yeah, I think that's when you have to walk away and have have some time apart I think having time apart is brilliant well I think that's what you were saying about our job because you are on, yeah. you're away a lot aren't you I, my job my job is also my hobby and my my passion and 
Oh God, I didn't. I can't believe I said my passion. <laughs> it's my passion. You've changed. Tom Hiddleston. This is my passion. <laughs> um, but I think it is my it's my social life as well. So my job is my social life. It is my and pub connected. quizzes are your social life, as I found out on House of Games. What did you say? Pub quizzes are pub your quizzes, social yeah. life. So you bloody professional quiz with comedians. With comedians. I know. When I had that, I was like, I might as well. I didn't realize you'd won Celebrity Mastermind as well. Yeah, the trophy should be behind me somewhere. You could probably, I can't see where it is. It's somewhere. What was your specialist subject on Celebrity Mastermind? Les Dawson. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Did and you, you know get... what? They never asked They never asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to before I'd done the research. Really? Yeah, I, I, it was quite... So you were disappointed? Yeah, I wasn't really challenged. Ah, and yeah. how did you do on the general, general bit? Smashed it. Yeah, I was interested in the conversation we had on the train mm-hmm. in the, what you were talking about, about your, because you're going up to Edinburgh, this will, I'm sure, have gone out by the time you're going to Edinburgh in August. And I was quite interested in the stuff you were talking about, because it wasn't what I expected your show to be in terms of sort of, I guess, I don't know, sort of having a pop at the patriarchy through yourself and sort of some sort of gender kind of stereotype kind of turning on head stuff that there was some stuff in there that I quite that I really liked the sound of well I think so I think um it, it, it I didn't write anything sort of to go right let's dismantle the patriarchy because I don't think I'm capable of that but I well, think if you are let me know yeah um, if I and am then Deborah Francis it. White love you on the guilty feminist I'll she doesn't do have it. me on it yet so yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, so. It's it's about my experience. So you can only talk about your own experience. My experience is I became a middle aged man and suddenly started doing this, a lot of this valuation stuff and this evaluation. Sorry, of uh, not I didn't work for an estate agent. That would be a midlife crisis, wouldn't it? <laughs> what did you do? I bought a shiny suit and got a job with Hart. Yeah, have you heard about Morehouse? He's at Foxton's. Morehouse, that's it. <laughs> more houses. Hi. <laughs> I'll get more for your house. Says Morehouse. Um, they, um, I wanted to do a podcast once where I used to, I would every week I would go to a different listener's house and call it more house in your house. And we just walk around their house, you know, like cribs, but just going, yeah, oh, look at your kitchen, it's tramping. Yeah, like, like cribs for muggles. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. I'm going to pitch, I'm going to pitch that, Callie. Write that down. Yeah, yeah cribs for a for small fee. Muggles. There you go. <laughs> uh, I love, I love pitch ideas that always. Something meets something. It's always something meets something, isn't it? Although we were always told when I was working in the telly business, we were always told to be really careful of saying that when we were the ones owning the format and actually creating it ourselves in case you got sued. So if you're like, it's like who wants to be a millionaire meets Big Brother, they'd be like, don't say that because you'll have Celador and Endemol both um, serving you with a piece of it. Yeah, but I think it's fine when we're pitching it in as talent for sure. Exactly. So, so yeah, so the show's about me uh, discovering about midlife crises and, 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 and looking, you know, what is the point of men? And, you know, it's an interesting thing that what, why the patriarchy exists. Is it because men were stronger in the tribe and, and that sort of stuff? Or because it, women live like, I don't, understand, I don't understand why men are in charge, but they are. Yeah, I think you've just expressed a sentiment many people feel. Which is? Well, no, is that which is don't understand why they are in charge, but they still are. Because I'm is doing this a... joke of saying, this is the patriarchy, <laughs> this sad sack of shit, this podgy 52 year old kind of <laughs> comedian spouting, but this is in charge. It's just, it's a, you know, uh, it's a weird thing. And I, I, I started, I'll show you that. Hold on a second. I'm going to grab my book. Hold on. Where's my book? Where's my book now? 
Where's my book that I'm reading all the time? Here it is. Here it is. So I've I've done some I've done some basic reading, um, and I bought Beginner's Guide to Feminism, um, and I, I'm just I, I'm absolutely fascinated by uh, feminism, second wave feminism, postmodern fem, all those things. I was not like expecting I said, that to be one of the books on your bookshelf behind you. I'll be honest. No, well, I was talking about this, that, and the other, and then I thought to myself, it is just wanting equality isn't it and surely everybody wants equality i can't understand a conceptual frame of mind or so i couldn't understand a frame of mind that i'd say i don't want equality i do want a hierarchy where some people are better than other people based on their gender their sexual orientation their you know privilege whatever it is their color of their skin their religion whatever it is Equality in all forms is really important, I think. I'm not a kind of roughy tufty working class kind of, hey, fight the fight. But I, I come from a very working class background, a normal, you know, <laughs> a normal working class background. And by that, I mean, my parents both worked. My dad was made redundant loads of times, you know, um, in the Thatcher years, you know, we were up and down. We weren't, we weren't poor, but we weren't rich. And I just think, and I, and I look at their lives, I look at how hard they had to work, and I just think they weren't treated equally. And then I look at my friends who are black or gay or whatever, they're, they're not treated equally. And then I look at myself and I go, I've got it so easy. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand. This is going to sound like, like but I'm trying to articulate it for the first time now, just saying it out loud, is I don't understand how white, middle-aged Western men would ever think that life isn't fair mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. them. And I see that in comedy now, oh, well, you can't get booked now unless you're a one-legged lesbian dwarf, Japanese transsexual. And you go, yeah, you can. Yeah. Look at the telly. They're still nearly all men. And certainly on bills, on live bills, it is still, as you yeah. know, hugely dominated by white men still. I mean, it is still booked no by question. white men. It's yeah. still controlled by white men and it's unconscious bias and it's everything else that goes along with that. Um, I'm not saying the people who run, you know, the, the gatekeepers of, of, of the circuit are necessarily racist or whatever. They're not. They really want to, but it's a systemic problem and it's kind of in that. I can understand how men can get frustrated by that if they see, because everyone wants to blame somebody else, doesn't, don't they? That's how, that's how racism starts, isn't it? Because you think that they're taking something off you. And, you know, when you see somebody who gets books on something and they're not very good, then straight away, you're going to say, why are they getting books? Yeah. And, and you sometimes, ever, like, yeah, it's because they're white men. Well, it's yeah. funny that um, I, I interviewed Angela Barnes for this recently, and she said that one of the things she feels really pleased about having changed with so many more women doing panel shows and stuff, she said it used to be when she was the only woman doing them, that if you fucked up, not or if you did on stage if you, as a female comedian back then, she said not only were you shit, but all female comedians were shit. Yeah. That's, that said you literally were there to represent an entire group, and at least now you kind of live or die on your own merits, and, and people aren't going, if I go into a gig and I have a bad one, they're not going to all women shouldn't be doing comedy well they might be but more likely they'll just be responding to what I do have you had it where women have said to you 
women out for now. Oh god, you know, I I do um there used to be nights when it was Piccadilly Comedy Club and I like you I MC a lot and actually yeah. MCing for me is a more sort of natural talent than than doing a set. Um I feel like I'm definitely more of a performer than a writer as the comic, which is a bit of a um stumbling block in a way, but then it's no, I guess I think it's harder to be a performer than it is to be a writer. You can, Do you think you, so? You can work hard at being a writer. You can't work hard at being a performer. That's true. Well, I like that. I like that you say that because I sometimes because a lot of my funny stuff comes out of MCing, and I feel like that's a cheat because I'm like, well, if I wrote it on stage, does it I write, count? I write every single joke I've ever done on stage. Okay, I'm relieved to hear that because yeah. that's very much my that's very that's much where they live. Happens. Yeah, that that's is. Where and, and I mean, there's ideas, germs of ideas I've got, and then it always becomes a funny idea because of something daft that happens in a room when I'm MCing. Exactly. Um, okay, well, I'll take that as a as a super as a superpower not a weakness then if you definitely oh, definitely lo- i'm glad we had this conversation yeah who do you like best <laughs> who who are the most loved comedians the great performers are the great writers yeah that's true although if you look at someone like jerry seinfeld i'd say he's both isn't he he's not loved he's rich yeah that's true i love him i do love his i i mean god i love seinfeld the series still i mean I, i'm yeah. re-watching it now it's, it's bloody stacks up still but i do what was but so the um i used to MC a lot at the piccadilly comedy club when it was still that and i know it's a stand-up club now and i still do it but they used to have like a, a, a all-female bill about once a month mm-hmm. and i would never ever refer to the fact it was an all-female bill at not at any point and very often i'd say it's very rare anyone even commented on that you know occasionally someone go oh, it was all women but i do remember one one night when I was about to MC it and I don't think they used to put on the posters it was either and there was um a, a couple walking down the stairs from the toilet and they were coming in quite late and they walked past me not knowing I was the MC and the woman said I bloody hate female comedians I hope there aren't any on tonight and I thought <laughs> you're in deep shit and I chose not to say a word about it until right at the end and then I couldn't help myself at the very end of the night I was like have you all had a good night I was like madam have you had a good night she went I've loved it I said well I said have you changed your opinion because I heard your conversation on the way from the toilet she's like oh my god I'm so sorry I said it's fine but do you now think women can be funny she went I do I do but it's true it is and again we shouldn't stereotype I guess in that direction either but if there's if I've ever had real real trouble in an audience of people just really not liking me it's been women not men like who've just personally did not take to me yeah as it's, it's always been women yeah well if people have not taken to me it's always boyfriends of women of laughing good look, at you of good looking women laughing at me yeah it's funny, isn't it? I see them, beefcakes, yeah. you know, yeah. like that, looking at the girls. Like, yeah. Looking at me, like, you know, it's just such a... Threatened by it, aren't they? Well, I do think you get a long way as a funny person. It's a very attractive quality, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think there's a reason that after gigs, people talk to comics, but they don't realise that that was our best... When you're saying at home, you're not coming <laughs> in with like, your jazz. That's it, that's my best chat. 20. Yeah, that's, 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 yeah. that's not going to get you through a whole date. <laughs> so whenever people come up to me, they're like, I think you're really funny. I'd love to take you out. I'm like, that is it. You've just you've just seen the best I can be. Do you um, know that story <laughs> of, the, of the comedian comes off stage in Vegas? It's his first Vegas weekend. <laughs> And uh, he comes off stage and this woman comes up to him and she says, uh, I just watched you on stage. I thought you was incredible. Can I buy you a drink? And he says, yeah. So he, she buys him a drink and uh, they have a few more drinks and they get on famously. And she said, Should we, let's go for dinner. So they go for dinner and uh, everything goes great. She says, I'm, I'm staying here at the hotel. Uh, I'm actually in the penthouse. Do you want to come back? And he says, yeah, I do. So they go back and they make love until dawn comes. And in the morning they're having breakfast on the balcony and she declares to him that, I think I'm in love with you. And he said, I think I'm in love with you. She said, I need to tell you this about myself, that I am a a totally independently wealthy woman. I'm self-made. I run companies all over the world. And uh, 
I want you to be my uh, partner and be with me forever. And all this. And I have homes in New York and Mali and all this sort of stuff. And he's like, all oh, right, okay. So they stay together and they're together then for the next 50 years, the next 50 years, they have like eight children, 17 grandchildren, great grandchildren have a long and beautifully happy life. And he's, he's lying in his dotage. He's about 89, 90 and he's, he's on his deathbed and she's by his side and she's mopping his brow and she's stroking him. And she said, what a life we've had together. And he said, I know. And she says, it's been incredible, hasn't it? And he says, it has. She said, and I feel like I've always been able to tell you anything and you've always been able to tell me everything. And we've always shared our time together. And he said, there's, there's one thing I need to ask you. And she said, what is that? He says, do you remember the night we met in Vegas? She said, I'll never forget that night. He said, yeah, I came on stage and you bought me a drink and you told me that I was really funny. She said, yeah. He says, was it the late show or the early show you watched me do it? <laughs> That's just wasted about three minutes of non-comedian's time. No one else looking. Which was, which was the show that I was really funny at? <laughs> well, I love it. No, I think. <laughs> and it is that, isn't it? It's that sort of... Um that obsession that we yeah. have and also the the bit that people don't realize is it, it, what we are on who we are on stage is real yeah it's a real version of us but it's a it's curated right so when we seem yeah. to overshare we know exactly what we're oversharing yeah I have people come up to me sometimes afterwards and tell me every personal thing about whatever aspect of themselves and I'm thinking no I didn't just blurt out a load of stuff by mistake because I needed the therapy I know exactly yeah. what I'm sharing with you exactly. and I know why and I know where it's going that's I've so got a bit may, in this yeah. show I got a bit in this show about my dad dying and I sort of announced it right at the end of the show, which is a typical Edinburgh thing. And I go, my dad died and the other go, Ooh, and I go, it, it's really all right. This is not the first time I've said this. Like, you know, people go, how did the show go? It was all right till he, he had a breakdown at the end. So I'm going to tell you about this and it's my dad. You can't get upset about my dad dying. You know, I'm going to tell you my story. <laughs> I went, and if you don't laugh, then you'd be smirching his memory. So <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> well, I was going to ask. <laughs> lots of stories are amalgams, aren't they? They are sort of like bits of this and bits of that put together. I always think that all my stuff on stage is rooted in truth. And there's the odd exaggeration and there's the odd adding a bit of a story in to make it funny, to make it presentable. Because actually real life's quite boring, isn't it? Well, it's all, or it's bringing bits together. I've got a bit about, the, I'm, I'm working up at the moment about losing my temper with the kids. Um, the one time I lost it really badly, not in a way where I hurt them in any way, but I just ended up really shouting and lose, losing it in front of them. And it's a, it's an amalgamation of a few things that happened. And then, a, a, and actually the, the, you've got to give it a comic sort of a, some kind yeah. of slapstick environment or something. Otherwise it's just yeah. a sad story about a single mum losing her temper. <laughs> Our children do not speak in rule of three. <laughs> there you go. No matter how much we tried to teach them yes. to do that. Did you, um, did you find, how have you found balance then by, you know, just, just, just after all those difficult things that happened in lockdown and you said you've taken some medication, you're still taking a bit of medication, but would you say you've got more back in balance then? Was that a kind of midlife crisis that's passed or are you still in the potential thick of it throws of it um i don't know really i think that i'm aware of my frailties so i'm taking action about that so what i wasn't before was aware of it and that was a problem i'm still i mean i'm like every goddamn comedian still convinced i'm adhd <laughs> i'm still looking for my thing that's wrong with me so i think i'm all right i think i'm coming through it i think um 
I think this year is going to be a year of, of getting back onto it. Work has been great and my stand-up is good and I'm loving doing stand-up again. So I think that will help me. Another, I don't know how I, here's a bold thing to say. I think if we went into another pandemic, I'd retrain. Would you? Yeah, I'd have to give this up because I couldn't take that heartache again. I couldn't do it again. Even though you did, because you were doing podcasting and radio, you were doing radio from the pandemic, weren't you? Yeah, but I was doing it in a frustrated kind of way. Right. Uh, kind of like a frustrated performer. I just think, and I was doing, I was um, driving people about as well. I was doing volunteering driving. So I was getting out, I was having little shows for two people in the back of the car when they were for their injections. Well, I'm glad you haven't retrained and given it up. I think um, I think we need you out there as, as a vote. You you're definitely one of the best live comedians I've ever seen. And I think people who see you would would agree with that. You are, um, you know, pretty oh. well regarded on the circuit and you've got your fan base for good reasons. So I, I'd like you to keep doing it for a while. I will longer then. Yet. Yeah, I will. If, you, if you wouldn't mind just doing it for me and my dad, that'd be brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> just for the beatings. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Justin, as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? Uh, 2000, driving down the A57, the Hyde Road in Manchester through Bellevue. I'm, I was filming Phoenix Nights at the time in the first series. I was about a year into being a comedian. I got this small part in the TV series that nobody knew anything about. I was going to do the um, the City Life Comedian of the Year final at the brand new comedy store. And as I drove through Bellevue, the back window of my uh, G-Reg Sierra gear fell out. And I had to sort of like wiggle it up, put some black tape on it. I get to the gig and I'm late. I get in there and it's the final of the competition and they say, we've already done the draw. And I went, oh, you've already done the course, you have, we've already done the draw. Where am I? They went, you're on first after the break. And I went, wow. Yes. <laughs> I walked on stage and I didn't really, I, I, I changed my attitude at that, that moment. I kind of, I, I, thought of not, I, I thought I was going to do badly. I just walked on and I just sort of like went for it. And I think, I don't think I've ever had a gig as good as that. And that was my moment where I held the audience in the palm of my hand after having a stressful time and I could switch it off as I, as I went through the door and got on the stage. And I thought, and at that moment, I went, nope, and I won it. And uh, the comedy store signed me up from that moment on. We did everything. Loads of things happened from that moment. But that moment, that was the moment I came off stage before anything. I just went, yeah, I'm a comedian. Wow. And it was that... Yeah. That clear cuts. Yeah, I'm a comedian. I, 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 you know, I didn't care about my car and, and I didn't care about winning. I knew, I, I sort of knew that I'd won. And from that moment onwards, I just didn't stop. And you were new then, weren't you? You hadn't been going long when that yeah. all happened. Yeah, yeah. Do you still find that on, I, when life's difficult, the happiest time in my day is the 20 minutes on stage. Yeah. And I find no matter what's going on, no matter how bad I'm feeling, I sometimes think I should cancel the gig. I'm in such a bad way. And on those nights, I don't find it very easy chatting to people before or afterwards. But the bit on stage is just like a warm bath. It's yeah. like, thank God I'm here. And it, you literally get a, get a little holiday from yourself, don't you, for those 20 Definitely. minutes? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happiest on stage. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with the other 23 hours and 40 minutes, Justin? That's the question. Wait for the next one. <laughs> okay. Get our stopwatch going. Only yeah. another 22 hours to go. Yeah. And uh, what's your favourite joke? I think it's the uh, the man with the orange for a head. 
Do you know this joke? No, I don't. So Bob goes in a bar and he, he looks across and there's a bloke at the end of the bar and he's got an orange for an head. And he thinks, this is a bit weird. He says to the barman, he says, hey, excuse me. He said, don't ask me. He said, if you want to know, ask him yourself. So he goes over, he says, excuse me. And the bloke says, I know you're going to ask me. Buy me a drink and I'll tell you. So he buys him a drink. And he says, he says you want to know what happened with the orange for my head, don't you? And he goes, yeah. He said, well, he says, it's a classic genie story. He's walking on the street. I saw a lamp, picked it up, gave it a rub. Genie came out, gave me three wishes. He said, what do you wish for? He said, well, wish number one. He says, I wished, he said, for a beautiful wife. He said, and a gorgeous, loving, happy family. And he gets his phone out and he shows him some pictures. He said, that's my wife and that's my family. He said, what was your second wish? He said, I always wanted, he says, a beautiful villa in Ibiza. He said, well, I want them white villas overlooking the turquoise seas on the orange hillside. He showed us pictures and that's what I've got. That's amazing. He said, what did you wish for the third wish? He said, I wish for an orange for a head. <laughs> no, I haven't heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's also the way you tell them, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, what would it be? I'll give you the advice that I give to both my children every single morning when I took them to school. And it's advice that I give to myself, to you, Callie, to everybody. And it's the Justin's three tenets of life. Be kind, have fun, try your best. Namaste, that was Justin Morehouse. Every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, well, in fact, not just this week, this month, I'm not going to go full vegan, but I am going to make May a full month of going vegetarian. I've done a sort of reverse zeitgeist thing on this because I was actually vegetarian for 10 years when I was younger, from my mid-teens to my mid-twenties. And then I met the father of my children. He was a great cook. One day we woke up, next thing I know I was eating a bacon sandwich and the rest is history so I've got no excuse now not to try being vegetarian again I've done it before I'm sure I can do it again so that's what I'm going to do in May feel free to join me and as always get in touch with us if there's anything you'd like us to know about that or any of the other things you're trying from the podcast and that is it for this week's show thank you so so much for keeping on listening and supporting us next Thursday we will be back in your feed as always with the very episode we talked about in today's show my guest former premier league footballer and now pundit and commentator chris sutton all those years you you know you've spent with that dream uh, of, of becoming a footballer and then you have that that knockback namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by jake yap i'm callie beaton until next time motherfuckers Ball. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.